The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entities seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording. Zone 3 Podcast, I am Robert. Yes, and I am Reggie. And we know who our guest is. Yes. It's actually a fun episode today because when you think about it, when it comes to MRI safety, there's a lot of liability and comes with that legal woes. <laughs> and so sometimes there's a need for, like say, when an expert uh, witness and litigation. And so I imagine you've got some experience with that, Toby. But actually, first, let's introduce Toby. Okay. You've been here before. I just assume everybody knows you. <laughs> <laughs> You're somewhat of a celebrity yeah. in the field. Maybe so. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you would, just kind of introduce yourself. Tell sure. us. Uh, so... Um, Tobias, Toby Gilk. Um, I, I, my background is as an architect. We talked about that in a previous yeah. episode. Yeah. So if you want to catch that. Yeah. Link in the um, description. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I've been involved in MRI equipment siting and safety related issues for 20 plus years now. Um, and as it happens, some weird stuff happens, um, and sometimes they need somebody to come in and help the attorneys and the insurance companies and the hospitals and stuff sort sort things out. So Dang. you also dabble in rap music, I believe, right? And this is <laughs> put the link to that, Reggie. <laughs> or only rapper, <laughs> only with the right producer. You know? yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> We can kind of go through the list of different uh, civil cases. I, is it mostly civil, like lawsuits that you are experienced yeah. with? This isn't criminal, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I haven't done anything with, with <laughs> criminal stuff. So, um, of course, when, when we're talking about something that goes bad in MRI, you know, we, you know, in that umbrella of things that go bad in MRI, could be, you know, a misdiagnosis or, you know, something lo- something directly attributed to the patient care of you know the person getting the scan or whatever those are all that's that's in the the clinical world of things and that is not where i live and and work so you know first (laughs) off i'm i'm gonna you know preempt any uh, any thoughts of of you know well is is Burn, the pathology, like you yeah. know, is it visible in this scan? You know, did the doctor do the right job in terms of identifying what was wrong with the patient? And, you know, was something missed in the scan? That kind of all of that stuff that sort of on, you know, clinical performance of a radiologist duty. Um, I don't touch with a 10 foot pole. And even if I wanted to, the courts probably wouldn't allow you to, because if you're talking about medical malpractice, most, if not all, courts will require that you actually, you know, have a medical degree. If you're talking about <laughs> you're an expert witness for that, right? <laughs> right. If if you're talking about how a nurse screwed something up, you know, right. then they're going to want at least, a, you know, somebody with a nursing credential to talk about. Well, this is what's expected of a nurse, makes which sense. makes total sense. Right. Um, so, so that piece of it um, is sort of outside what I do. Um, nice. 
because I have an architectural background, um, the expert witness stuff started out with uh, things related to the design and construction of MRI facilities and whether the design or construction contributed to or didn't, um, you know, something that, that went badly. And probably the, the, the first or most direct example of the relationship between the MRI equipment and the building we put it in is when magnets quench. Right. Um, and when a magnet quenches, there's not only the, the potential for, you know, badness inside the, the, the MRI room itself, but uh, the quench can do damage to the MRI scanner. Um, it can do damage to the building. Um, and mostly, but not always, um, the, the risks associated with a quench can be managed or mitigated um, if the facility um, designs the quench pipe the right way, if the construction is done correctly, if they inspect and maintain their quench pipe, you know, on a, on a regular basis, the, the preparation and preventative maintenance kinds of things, if they do that stuff, then, you know, if, and when a magnet quenches the likelihood that somebody's going to get hurt or that the equipment's going to be damaged or that the building's going to be damaged goes way down. So that aspect of it has sort of a direct, you know, design and construction thing. Right. So, I mean, so what I'm taking from that is, once you pop, the fun don't stop. Type thing. <laughs> He's been waiting for five minutes. <laughs> like, Is he gonna let me say it? <laughs> well, I guess you're probably dealing with a lot of design flaws, um, but you're also dealing with like uh, policies that aren't followed. Maybe policies were never implemented in the first place, kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, I started out just doing, you know, the. 10, 15 years ago, I think was the first time that I got asked to be an expert witness on a case. Um, and so my beginnings were in these sort of quench and magnet failures and, and magnet plus building or the interaction between them. Um, but over time, that's kind of, that's morphed and it, it now includes, you know, MRI safety practices and, you know, do you have a policy and procedure statement? Do you follow your own policy and procedure statement? Um, and anybody who has written policies and procedures and yet the way you conduct patient care on a daily basis is different from that, if, God forbid, something goes wrong, you are screwed so many different ways. Um, if you don't even follow your own policies to say nothing of external requirements like accreditation or best practice guidance or whatnot, right. if you get the liberty of, of making up your own, you know, policies and practices and yet you can't even do what you say you're going to do you know you are so hosed yeah. um so yeah that that goes into multiple different levels of do you do what you say do you do what you know your accreditation organization says do you do what industry best practices say yeah that wow. that can get messy man well, I'm curious because you say you do have experience with being an expert witness. Is that typically on the plaintiff side, on the defendant side? Is I imagine you're there representing, or you're invited by one side, right? How does yeah. that work? Uh, so usually, you know, it'll be a call out of the blue. Um, um, somebody who it's like one of those Batman signals. <laughs> <laughs> Phone call after a Google search, probably. Um, but uh, so. I'll get a call 
the way that I like to do this um, doesn't always work out. Sometimes I get, you know, critical pieces of information beforehand. But, you know, if, if somebody identifies themselves as, hi, I'm an attorney, I'm calling you up because I'm, I want to know um, about you being an expert witness for us. What I'd like to do is, um, and I, I stole this directly from Dr. Canal, who taught me about this. Um, what I like to do is I say, stop, don't tell me who you represent don't tell me which interests you know uh, you're on the side of right just lay out all of the facts that you know to the best of your knowledge right and i will tell you my first impression of of what i think went right what i think went wrong if there's somebody who i think is responsible for what went wrong i'll i'll try and identify that but i don't want I don't want the you know whoever has called me to think you know I'm giving them the answer they want to hear because they told me you know what side of the argument they're representing. Um, so they'll lay out the story and and you know I'll say okay well yeah that this piece of the story really hits on this standard of practice or you know if this was at a hospital and they were joint commission accredited well then these accreditation standards would really apply to to this aspect of whatever that is. And I will essentially go through, admittedly, kind of off the top of my head, you know, and say, okay, here's what I think are, you know, where there is potential responsibility or liability or something like that. Here's where I think there really isn't any, um, you know, here's here's where things conform to best practices. Here here's where they deviate from best practices, um, and if you, whoever you represent, want me to be an expert, you know, for this case. This is sort of the you know the gist of what the direction that I would be heading, um, and then they can say, "Oh, crap! Yeah, we represent the plaintiff or the defendant, and your arguments really favor the other guy." Thank you very much. We won't be you know right. hiring you right now, um, but when we can do it that way that's my preferred way to do it because it essentially keeps everybody on the up and up and it's right. like you know look i'm going to tell you what i think and there'll be no question that that i'm trying to you know play sides or be biased right any make you happy right. you know because i know you're representing this guy as opposed to that guy or, or whatnot um but yeah all of this is um is civil litigation somebody suing somebody else um, either directly, you know, um, or indirectly. There's, um, so, so if you're having dinner with your family and somebody's driving their car down your street and loses control of their car and jumps the curb and breaks through your living room wall and now you've got a drive-through living room. Oh man! Right? That's my 80-inch TV right there. <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna call. You're gonna call your you know, homeowner's insurance agent, right? You know, some moron just crashed through my front wall you know right. you know i need you to send out contractors to repair everything when you make an insurance claim most insurance policies contracts essentially say if you come to me the insurance company and ask me to pay for for something that's covered um and i pay that out i have the option to say who was responsible for that should should I, as your homeowner's insurance, should I go after the guy who drove the car and his oh. insurance company? 
Um, maybe maybe the reason the car veered o- off the road was because there was an oil slick in the road because you know somebody spilled oil and they never cleaned it up and maybe right. that person is ultimately responsible or partially responsible. So that's called subrogation. Um, so when I, as the insurance company, pay out a claim or whatever, um, that now in the insurance contract, you essentially say, hey, if you make me whole, you get to go after whoever you want to make you whole for the insurance company. So a lot of this is insurance company after insurance company or insurance company after you know third party or stuff like that. So some of it's direct. A lot of it is is really because of or through insurance companies. Man, right. well, I mean, it's be, given that you're so embedded in the industry, I'm wondering: Are you a lot of times familiar with these cases when you do get these random calls? There are some of them that I hear about beforehand, but High to be profile. honest with you, most of them, you know, um, they try to keep it hush hush. I bet. Yeah, right. nobody nobody wants to advertise. You know, we right. had something go horribly wrong at our site. Um, right. You know, people try and keep that stuff under wraps um some of them make the news and and right. pretty much anything that's a that's an mri accident or you know somebody gets injured that makes news i'm probably going to hear about it within a few days right. um so mri the, safety <laughs> facebook page if you're not a member go ahead and like and subscribe um but uh yeah the i mean people will go to great lengths to try and keep this stuff quiet as long as i can you know right once the lawsuit lawsuits start flying, you know, it, it's kind of hard to keep things secret for too long after that. Yeah. Well, I guess just for full transparency, would you, I mean, are you compensated as an expert witness? Yes. Yeah. And is that to reimburse you for your expenses? Because I imagine there are some, or is there incentive? Oh, um, no, I don't, I don't know how other expert witnesses do this. Some, Maybe you say, you know, if you win the case, you pay me. If you lose the case, if I don't help you win the case, you don't pay me. Um, um, I, in, going back to like that that initial conversation idea, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want somebody, you know, thinking that that my opinions are somehow manipulated or or skewed to the left or to the right or to whatever, um, you know, because I have a, a a vested interest in in somebody winning the case. So my consulting agreements or expert witness agreements essentially say um, you're hiring me to be your expert and I'm going to be you know the best expert I can and whether or not you win or whether or not you know you get anything like the result that you're after you know I'm your expert which is part of the reason that I I try and do the unvarnished you know right. here's my initial opinion yeah um you know with this is whatever what limited doing. information so it's I'm not trying to trick anybody That's a way of doing it I appreciate that you do that yeah, yeah. so yeah the so the the agreement is it doesn't matter how the case turns out you know you're going to pay me for the services that I provide and right. I think an important piece of that is that initial conversation that's like look Here's what here's what I see coming into this, and if if that doesn't agree with what you want to hear, we'll shake hands. We'll say goodbye. You know. Well, being an expert witness is sort of a foreign concept to a lot of people, and I guess a lot of people would be curious. I know that I would be. Like, how how does one become an expert witness? Is there accreditation? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, there are like you know how to be an expert witness. You know. Training courses and stuff like that, um, and 
usually for like specific disciplines, like if you're an engineer, you know, how to be an expert witness engineer, that kind of thing. But there isn't really a, a formal credentialing process. Like, you know, you don't get a, a merit badge patch that says I'm an expert witness kind of thing <laughs> because right. you do whatever, you know, five steps are necessary to get you there. Um, essentially anybody who wants to can be an expert witness. But you do open yourself up to scrutiny, right? So oh yeah. Oh, you, you, absolutely. If you can't, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. You know, right. if you can't substantiate your thoughts and opinions, you know, um, because you will be challenged on every single thing that you say that favors one person, but you know, goes against somebody else's interest. That other person, they are going to come after you, um, and they are going to challenge everything that you say. And if they can't really challenge what you say, they'll challenge your credentials. As you know, um, I actually I was doing a deposition uh, just a couple of days ago, um, and I was making a point about you know this is this is what I believe is industry best practice for something. Um, and the attorney on the other side was like, but, but you're not, you're not a doctor. You never went to med school. You're not an MR tech. You, you don't have technologist credentials. Um, I think his intent was to try and say, you know, you're not well, qualified. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have any basis for being an expert on this particular aspect of it. And right. I kept on saying, no, this is not a question about medical care in terms of you know this is not this is not a physician rendering clinical care to a patient this is not a technologist um administering an mr scan the issue in, in question right. is were best practices were you know sort of the minimum standard of care was that followed for the for the care of this particular patient and it's like that's not that's not medical care right. exactly you know that's not um, a technologist's, you know, responsibility. Well, we all have responsibility to follow best practices, right. um, but it's not the technologist as sort of the, the 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 lone arbiter of you know. Well, I think this is right, and so therefore it makes it right. You know. And by the time like you're giving your deposition, I mean you've already been approved by like the judge and the parties and everybody, right? Or so different. Different courts um, have sort of different standards for what it takes to be an expert. Um, in in many courts, I think this is true for all federal courts. Um, if if somebody wants to bring you in, an attorney wants to bring you in as an expert, um, they essentially need to submit your qualifications for being an expert to the court, to the judge, right. um, and as with everything in legal proceedings, you know, if I get to make my case, you know, this way, the opposing counsel gets to make their case the other direction. And they essentially get to come in and submit a brief to the, to the judge saying, you want that guy to be your expert? <laughs> right. That guy never went to med school. That guy's not an RT, you know, right. you shouldn't, there's no way in hell you should let this guy be an expert for this. And so the judge essentially weighs, you know, these guys say he's really good. These guys say he's really bad. You know, am I going to approve so in federal courts, at least, um, I know you have to go through that process. And I think it's, I think different states have sort of different thresholds for what it takes to be expert. Um, uh, there are typically 
like we discussed a few minutes ago, there are minimum qualifications if you are doing medical malpractice. There are state court, you know, requirements for for being an expert in a medical malpractice case um, if you're offering expertise on what the clinical standard of care is in terms of, of patient care. Nice. Huh? I imagine you get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Just one, you get in people who are questioning your 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 qualifications and then you at the end of the day prove that you end up knowing more than they assumed or assume that you did but like just knowing that there's a due process and so much conscious thought put into like accountability in terms of mri safety i imagine um who you are in this industry you're pretty pretty well known as far as mri safety goes i imagine that's pretty satisfying yeah i mean yes it's it's nice both from, from like an ego stroke standpoint. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I like that, that people think that I have some level of expertise that Black I can belt. share with this. Black belt MRI safety, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, really, but beyond that, um, I think the other piece of that that you were getting at with the question is, is really gratifying just to, to be able to come into a situation where there are lots of people pointing fingers and you did this wrong and you did this wrong and to be able to kind of come in and help clear the decks and say, well, yeah, no, you're, you're making this argument, but that argument really is not supportable. You know, okay. I understand you have a vested interest on this side. I understand you have a vested interest on this side. Let's just, let's try and figure out what really happened. Let's talk what, reality, right? Right, yeah. right. Um, so it's kind of interesting because the, uh, the U.S. legal system is set up as an adversarial legal system. So, you know, um, you know, lawyers on one side have to argue, you know, for their client's best interest and argues on the lawyers on the other side have to argue, you know, the opposite or whatnot. So being an expert in some of these cases is sometimes kind of like being the referee and oh, saying, right. you, know, you know, both you guys are, are, you know, trying to score points here in, in the arguments, you know, Let's let's make our decisions based on you know the facts that, that we can uncover. Nice. Well, I saw that list of cases that you kind of sent us beforehand. I'm kind of excited to get into that. Sure. <laughs> Purposely didn't get into it too much because we wanted this to all be our right. first impression. Right. So I imagine it kind of all started off with one, and I'm and your role as being an architect played a part. Um, yeah. So yeah, the the first case that. Um, that I was an expert witness in um, was one where um, a hospital um, had an MRI. They um, was in a, a little addition on the hospital. Um, the, the magnet was filled, uh, cryogen fill overnight one night. You know, the guy shows up at six o'clock and they're running late with some patients, you know, so he doesn't get started until seven. He finishes up, you know, around 11 o'clock or midnight or something like that. He goes away at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., um, the magnet explodes inside the MRI suite. Um, um, the explosion was so powerful, um, and I, this is not this is not a, a, a fireball explosion, you know, like <laughs> right, like the movies, like in the movies. <laughs> um, so this is, I guess, technically explosive uh, decompression. Um, so an MRI is essentially like a, a pressure cooker 
Um, it's actually a sort of nested pressure cooker inside pressure cooker. I mean, the pressure oh, wow. vessels, technically. Um, and inside, the, in the, the very center of that, is a whole bunch of liquid helium for most MRI systems. We now have the cryogen-free or very low cryogen uh, systems. But um, most MRIs today have 1,000, 1,500 liters of liquid helium or have the capacity to hold that much liquid helium. Um, so this magnet had just been topped off, just been filled up with, so it had as much as it could hold for that particular magnet. Um, so, so they're pressure cookers, um, but we got to let the, the pressure escape if the pressure gets too high without the thing going kablooey. Um, so most MRIs have two different pressure relief mechanisms, um, a low pressure, um, so they want, they want the inside of the cryostat, the inside of the pressure cooker, to be just slightly higher pressure inside than the air pressure outside. And the reason for that is if there's, if there's a pinhole leak or something like that, you don't want atmospheric air going in oh. because the nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide in the air will liquefy and freeze solid and you will get you know nitrogen ice cubes floating around inside your MRI cryostat, which is not good for anybody. So to try and make sure that that never happens, they keep the inside of the, the cryostat slightly elevated pressure above atmospheric pressure. So if you came with a, a corkscrew a little, you know, you drilled a little tiny hole into the cryostat, a very slow puff of um, helium would escape from, from that and keep the atmospheric air from getting in. So many magnets have like a, a pressure differential of like a half PSI um, between, so it's, it's a half pound per square inch higher pressure inside the magnet than atmospheric pressure. Um, if you get much above that, um, then you start pressurizing the vessel and different magnets have different thresholds, but usually somewhere around three to five pounds of pressure is when the burst disc or pressure relief valve will go. Um, and that's when it all, essentially the inside of the cryostat opens up to the quench pipe and you know, that's, that's when that happens. Yeah. Um, so, but you wanna be able to release pressure somewhere between one half and let's say five. Um, if you can keep it from going, um, <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> right. So there's a, typically there's like a low pressure um, pressure relief uh, for that system. Um, this particular magnet, so they had just filled the magnet. And um, if any of you have ever watched a magnet being filled, they come in with the long hoses coming out of the, the, the transfer doer that, that they bring the liquid helium in, yeah. you know, and they go in and just the, the time that the, the hoses sit there, the, the um, liquid helium will turn to gas um, and you don't want to inject gaseous helium and you certainly don't want to inject any atmospheric air that maybe worked its way into the hose so before they like plug you know if you think of it like at the gas station before they put the hose gas hose into the you know the gas cap um uh, to fill up the the mri they squirt out a whole bunch of liquid helium to make sure that they flush the line and there's nothing in there um so so there's 
super cold liquid helium, you know, sort of being shot into the air and then they're plugging it into the top of the magnet in most instances. And the whole thing is just getting super cold as they're, you know, putting liquid helium that's 450 degrees below zero Fahrenheit into the MRI machine. The whole thing is like caked with frost and ice, you know, by the time they're done with the whole process. They disconnect the hoses, they essentially seal up the magnet. Who wants Guy a snow goes away. <laughs> <laughs> so so the whole top of the magnet is essentially coated in in frost and ice. Um, now you wait long enough, and you know room temperature, seventy degree air, and all that stuff is going to like melt off and it'll go back right. to normal, no big deal. But if there is water accumulated in the quench pipe, Ooh. right at like the the rupture disc, or if there's a separate low pressure bypass, if there was water in the quench pipe there that when everything's being sprayed with liquid helium and the whole thing is getting super cold, that's going to freeze solid, right? Um, now, all of a sudden, the what should be functionally sort of an empty open chimney to allow the pressure to escape, now it's got a, an ice plug in it and that pressure can't escape. Ooh. What does the water usually accumulate? So... Um, it accumulates because uh, one of two things: either the, uh, the the repair, the condition of the quench pipe, you know, something is broken or torn or you know, exposed to to the outside world when it shouldn't be, um, or the design of how the quench pipe exits the building um, is not what it should be. Um, right. And I actually brought along a graphic uh, that we can look at. Um, so this is. This is um, an illustration that really kind of copies the, the design of, um, we'll, we'll, we'll give the OEMs um, randomly chosen um, letters. So this is going to be um, vendor G. Um, they have a standard um, quench pipe discharge design that looks like this, comes up out of the roof turns 90 degrees and then it has like a 45 degree slice off the end of the pipe right and the intent of that 45 degree slice on the end of the pipe is if it's raining the top part of the pipe is going to protect the opening it's essentially like a little umbrella you know over the open part of the pipe the problem is that a 45 degree slice all you need is a wind speed of about 25 miles an hour to push rain at more than a 45 degree angle. Uh, I mean, we've all been outside when, you know, the wind's blowing and it's thunderstorming and the rain seems like it's going horizontally, oh, for right? Sure. Monsoon season. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're in a place where it rains and the wind blows, um, there is the potential at least that um, the, the wind blown rain is essentially going to fly in the end of a quench pipe that's designed like this. Um, so, once that drop of water gets in the, the mouth of that pipe, where does it go? Where does water always go? It goes downhill. Right. What's the most downhill place from up on the roof? Well, down that pipe, oh, right? Man. So the water can essentially, if it gets in the end of that pipe, um, it, it's going to drop and it's going to you know, accumulate inside the, the quench pipe. Depending so, on... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, depending on the design of the quench pipe, and usually you want those things to be as short as possible, as straight as possible, with as few, you know, bendy, twisty turns. Right. Um, so if, if you have your MRI scanner 
and you come out with a quench pipe and you come up to the roof right here and you get water in the place that it's going to go and collect is right at the burst disc or the pressure relief valve. And so in this particular case, when they fill the magnet and they freeze the whole top of the magnet, they freeze the quench pipe uh. with the water inside and they essentially create an ice block in the quench pipe. So now pressure's building inside the the pressure cooker, the right. you know, inside the cryostat, and it's got nowhere to go. Um, pressure equals heat. Motion mm -hmm. equals heat. Um, so as the pressure is building, the liquid helium is trying to boil off and turn to gaseous helium. And as soon as you go from liquid to gas, the volume that that wants to occupy for helium, oh. I think it's like eight times. So you take one liter of liquid helium and you boil it off into gaseous helium without changing the pressure. And it wants to be eight liters of gaseous helium. Oh, wow. It just takes up more space when right. it's a gas, which makes total sense when you think about it. So as the, the pressure is increasing, the heat is increasing, it's causing the helium to boil. The boil, boiling helium increases the pressure, which increases the heat, which causes more helium to boil. And essentially you've created this, you know. Ticking time bomb. Exactly. And like a ticking time bomb, it explodes. It blows up um, in the middle of the night. Thankfully in the middle of the night. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, nobody was hurt um, in this. So has new safety precautions been in, implemented to help prevent that? I mean, probably imagine design, but what about like places that are already with the older design? Do they? Um, well, something that is in, I think, every MR system operator's manual, uh, very few sites that I'm aware of actually do this. The MR system operator's manual says annually, you should inspect your quench pipe. You should make sure that there's no water that has gotten in and accumulated at the, the burst disc or the pressure relief valve. You should make sure that there aren't tears in it or that the um, at the very end of the quench pipe on the where it discharges, there's usually like a mesh screen or something like that to try and keep you know oh, right. lizards and birds from making their home inside this nice, cool, shaded you know yeah, place. Right. Um, Pigeons. Yeah. So <laughs> if if there is a, a problem with the, the maintenance and upkeep of the quench pipe or that kind of thing, you know, that, that can identify that we've got big problems. But if a site doesn't do the quench pipe inspections, they're not necessarily gonna know about that. Um, is that a part of like, uh, and I don't know if you know this, like the PM, like primary maintenance that they do? No, the OEMs, now there are exceptions to every rule, but right. in the US at least, the, um, the manufacturers go to great lengths to say, you know, our responsibility stops at the RF shield oh. for, the, for the quench pipe assembly. Right. We're responsible for the penetration of the RF shield and everything inside the room. But as soon as it leaves the RF shield, that's on you. That's on the hospital, the imaging center. That is your responsibility to take care of. And that's what you were there to illustrate. I imagine that was brought up. So you were in there that in that case and you're just saying, Yes, there is a policy that they are meant to check that annually. That and um, this particular situation was one where this was the magnet that blew up. We'll call it from vendor P. Um, the magnet that blew up from vendor P um, was a replacement MRI. Um, and there had been a previous MRI in that same building. Oh. Or 
and the details are kind of fuzzy to me. Maybe it was just that the, the engineers who designed it had done an, an MRI installation or designs for an MRI installation for vendor G. And vendor G has this come up and turn 90 detail. Vendor P's standard detail is different than that. But again, once you leave the RF shield enclosure, it, all that responsibility is on the owner. So yeah. they can, they want to do whatever they want. They want to, you know, put organ pipes up there instead of you know, quench <laughs> pipes. That's on them to make that decision. So one of the problems was that the quench pipe discharge, the, the, the business end that lets all of the helium out into the world, um, wasn't the design specified by the manufacturer of the MRI system that was put in. Um, so, you know, they essentially say you should do it this way, and yet the um, the engineers or the or the prior construction, and again, it's been a while, so I don't remember the exact details of that. Um, put in a, a quench pipe discharge detail from a different MRI system. Um, so, follow your vendor unless your vendor prescribes, you know, the ninety degree. Um, discharge, and, and don't I, use shortcuts by using the old quench. <laughs> right now, you can, in some circumstances, use the old quench pipe. But in order to do that, you essentially need to reevaluate the you know what how it was designed, how it was built. Um, oh, does what it says on paper is was that actually what was done in the real world? You know. Right. Um, are the pipes, is the pipe diameter the correct size? Is the wall thickness uh, appropriate to the, you know, sustain the pressure? Um, insulation. So many things to it. You know, all of these different things about the design of the quench pipe. Now, you very well may be able to swap out magnet one for magnet two, and the design of the quench pipe for magnet one will work for magnet two. I'm not saying you need to go and tear everything out and replace it every time you swap magnets. Um, but you do need to to go in and reevaluate it. Right. Was that a case that went, dragged out for a long time, or was it pretty uh, straightforward? Um, that took several years because quenches can be difficult to figure out why a quench happened. Right. right? Um, right. So, um, I think anybody who's who's looked at you know quenches before uh, quench safety related stuff has heard the term spontaneous quench right i hate the term spontaneous quench um so there's there's the the manual quench we go up to the big red button and we smack it right and we force the magnet to quench right um but then magnets quench without us pushing the button sometimes um spontaneous quench makes it sound like, you know, it's the hand of God that kind of reaches down and for whatever reason, you know, it's your turn, buddy, you know, <laughs> and this magnet's going to quench and we'll never know why. Right. There is always a cause. Now, sometimes we won't figure out what that cause is or, you know, don't have enough information often because, you know, quenches may be caused by stuff inside the the cryostat with the the liquid helium Just like like i was talking it. earlier yeah. about you know liquefied atmospheric gases and nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide that stuff gets in there and swirls around and bumps into the um the magnetic coils you know right. high electricity you know energized magnetic coils that might trigger a quench right but then all of the stuff that's in there get shot out the quench pipe and it's gone 
you know, and <laughs> how are you going to figure out what that was? Yeah, good luck with that. Right. right. <laughs> so, so spontaneous quench is sort of the industry term for any quench of a magnet where nobody pushed the button. Um, but um, it's not hand of God. It's not, you know. Right. We may not be able to identify a specific cause in, in a particular a case, cause. but there is a cause, right? right? And so, you know, we need to take a look at it. So in this one that did drag out for a long time, part of it was trying to figure out what triggered the quench. Um, and I, it was one of those situations where short of cutting the magnet open and trying to, you know, figure out what was left inside the pressure cooker, you know, afterwards, um, we probably weren't going to be able to 100% conclusively say this is what caused it to quench. Um, in fact, um, we weren't able to, it, in the conventional sense, find a smoking gun for why the magnet, why the vessel exploded inside the room. Um, was it that pressure? Well, so my theory was that, you know, there was water that had gotten into the quench pipe and that during the fill it had frozen solid. Um, and of course the fire department comes in and the sprinkler system has, uh, has gone off because bits of the, the exploding magnet actually fly up and sever the sprinkler pipes over the room. Oh, wow. So, you know, everything's being doused with water. Um, you know, Ooh. we only get to, they called us immediately after this accident happened. So we were down on site, you know, two or three days after this happened. Um, and it's a mucky mess, you know, we were some of the first people to come down and take a look at it. But let's, let's say my theory is correct, that there was an ice block in the quench pipe. First chance I get to put eyes on this magnet is three days later. Uh, if there was an ice block, it is gone by oh, now. Yeah. Yeah, so, sure. but what we did is as a part of the investigations, um, and it took months, if not years for all of the parties to kind of agree on the investigation method. Um, but we actually went and we took elements of the quench pipe. And this, like I say, this is months or years later. Um, and we actually sawed the quench pipe in half and kind of opened it up to, to take a look at it. And what do we find? We found rings inside the quench pipe that looked like they were where water had accumulated. Uh -huh. And just like, you know, if, if you leave a, a, a wheelbarrow or a or bucket outside, or yeah, right? yeah. you know, leave it outside for, you know, several months and it's going to get this film across it and right. you drain it and there's going to be a ring, you know, where, you know, the, algae or bacteria or whatever it was that was growing in that. Right. So, so we cut open the quench pipe and there are all of these rings, you know, in there that tell us that there had been water in there and there had been a significant amount of water and that it had been there for a significant length of time because there were multiple different rings. So, oh, wow. If so water gets in, investigator, he's not just an expert witness. <laughs> yeah. I see why they he's put the in the game up for you. <laughs> Would you turn out to be Dexter? Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. I blew the magnet up. And I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> there's a twist. <laughs> well, that's a fun case. I imagine there's several. I'm curious what other ones. Um, yeah. So, so that was one where the the, the magnet went kablooey. Um, but it, interestingly, it doesn't take explosive decompression to essentially destroy the magnet. That one, the previous one, destroyed the magnet, destroyed a big chunk of the building. Yeah. Um, the previous one, actually, the, the force of the explosion was so great that it actually 
pulled the roof up off of the walls of the building, lifted it up because Ooh. of the pressure is escaping out the top of the magnet. And then the roof of the building essentially falls back down onto the walls around it. It was, it was wild. Wow. But you don't have to have explosive decompression to ruin your magnet. So um, another um, magnet failure uh, expert witness case, um, this actually happened in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and so this was 100 plus miles inland. Um, so this is not, you know, the hurricane blasting the, the hospital or whatever and knocking it down. This was Hurricane Katrina coming through and knocking out power that served this uh, smaller hospital. Um, and it, the, the MRI at this hospital was without power for a day and a half or something like that. For most magnets, that's not a huge deal. You know, you boil off cryogen at a more rapid rate, but you know, as long as you get power restored within a few days, you're cool. This magnet, however, um, if, if it was without power for the better part of a day, it was at risk of quenching. So day and a half later, they come back, the power is restored, um, and they discover that the magnet quenched while power was out. Um, they bring in the, the OEM uh, to come back in and you know, refill it with the liquid helium and get the thing back up and running again so they can scan patients. And they start putting helium into the, the cryostat, the pressure cooker, mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, um, like, like a, a cold glass of iced tea on a hot, humid summer day, moisture starts beating up on the outside oh, of the MRI. Condensation almost, huh? Exactly, oh. which is not supposed to happen. <laughs> um, you, you know, even though all of our superconducting electromagnet MR systems have liquid helium 450 degrees below zero Fahrenheit inside them, the outside surface is not super cold. It right. doesn't collect condensation on it because they're super insulated, right? right? So one of the ways that magnets are insulated is they have vacuum vessels, essentially thermos bottles, right? So we got pressure cookers and we got, we got pressure and we got vacuum mm -hmm. in kind of alternating modes. So there's, there's this vacuum chamber around the, the pressure cooker um, and the vacuum chamber is for insulation. Um, imagine I have like a piece of fabric, right? And I, I hang it up like a hammock, right? It's, it's sort of stretched over here. And I grab a bunch of oranges, right? And I put them into this piece of stretch fabric, right? The fabric is solid. It's, the oranges aren't gonna slip through. But at some point we can find something that is small enough that if I put it on top of this, so talcum powder, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I sprinkle talcum powder on top of this piece of fabric, right? Um, and the talcum powder is going to sit on top of the fabric. But if I start doing this, I start applying a little bit of pressure to it. All of a sudden, we're going to get snow. We're going to get right. talc falling because talc is, you know, really fine particles, right? Um, and fabric, even though we think of it as sort of solid, we know that it's 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 a mesh, right? And, right. and there are gaps and there are little holes in in between. The things that we think of as solid, we think of that they're as solid because the stuff we put in them or on them is so much bigger than the holes that are there in that material. The pressure cooker, 
the, the, the cryostat that we put liquid helium in, um, the metal of that has little tiny holes, um, but they're just smaller than um, helium atoms. Mm. So the helium doesn't really pass through it. But all of a sudden you increase the pressure inside the pressure cooker and you essentially push the helium atoms through the wall of the metal. And you turn what is a solid piece of metal into something that looks like the strainer you drain pasta in. Oh, right? <laughs> These little tiny, you know, atomic size holes in the, the cryostat. So, so, so this hospital is trying to get their magnet back up and running and they keep filling it. And essentially the helium slowly is bleeding out through the pressure cooker walls into the vacuum chamber, which means your vacuum is no longer a vacuum, which means okay. it's no longer insulating, which means the outside gets super cold, which means condensation starts forming on the outside of uh, the MR scanner. Right. So they're like, oh, how on earth did this happen? You know, we had the quench, the magnet quenched, it didn't explode, but how how did we effectively ruin this magnet? Um, and again, we had to do some, you know, detective work. And, and it had this, this MRI had the exact same um, detail for their quench pipe discharge um, that came up. So it went up through the roof and it turned 90 degrees and it had the 45 degree cutoff at the end of the pipe. Um, and this is in Hurricane Katrina. This is the inland part. Of, so maybe it was Tropical Storm Katrina by this point. But um, remember, the two things you need to defeat that design are rain falling and wind blowing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so in a hurricane, you're probably going to get both of those. Oh, yeah. So um, what we think happened uh, was that rain falling, wind blowing, end of the quench pipe, you know, water gets into to the end of it. And it goes straight down and it collects on, for this particular magnet, a burst disk. Um, and that it probably wasn't enough, like the previous one, to cause the magnet to go kablooey. But it was enough to sort of slow or resist the, the pressure buildup enough that inside the pressure cooker, the pressure got above five. Five pounds per square inch or, or you know. Yeah. And it only takes a little bit more than that to be enough pressure to push those little helium molecules, you know, through the wall of the cryostat and turn it into a very expensive spaghetti strainer. <laughs> you actually painted that really well. Oh yeah. I was able to visualize that very well. <laughs> I love spaghetti, by the way. <laughs> Everybody We're definitely spaghetti. gonna do a thumbnail with you and like <laughs> Pasta. <laughs> Mamma mia. Uh, Sherlock Holmes with the pipe. Right oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I see you now, more than anything, as a yep. private investigator. Yeah, that's interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, I imagine a lot of this is very cool for you because it's kind of like detective work, right? So oh, you're yeah. seeing that side of it, but you're also getting satisfaction out of being part of the solution. Yeah. Um, any other cases? Yeah. Uh, whether. <coughs> A couple others where magnets have actually blown up. Um, uh, there was one in Georgia. Um, Shout out GA, my <laughs> fam. Um, where they were um, deinstalling an MRI scanner um, that they had they had hit the quench button um, and then they opened up the back wall of the MRI room and they were in the process of sort of pulling it out, got it into the adjacent space. Um, and 
the the folks who were moving this magnet, um, I think, didn't know how they were actually supposed to do this. They knew that. Um, so the, the the vacuum chamber right around the the, the pressure cooker yeah. um, that is the insulating barrier. When you push the quench button, about seventy or eighty percent of whatever is inside the magnet for liquid helium. Um, it boils off and escapes pretty much right away. But there's 20 to 30% of whatever there was before still left. And it goes through that eight times expansion, just going from liquid to gas. And then it goes um, like about a hundred time expansion as it, go, as it warms from 450 degrees below zero to whatever room temperature is, right? So you get a, a total expansion of liquid helium at a ratio of about 700 to one. So one liter of liquid helium at 450 degrees below zero is about 700, 800 liters of gaseous helium at room temperature. So it does not take a whole lot of liquid helium to fill a, an enclosed space, right? So, so you hit the quench button, let's say 80% of the helium that's in there goes away. Let's say you've got, um, 100 liters of, of liquid helium in there. You have the potential of 700, 800 to one expansion. So that 100 liters of liquid helium that's in there could be 8,000 liters of gaseous helium once you, did I do the math right? You did actually, that was quick too, okay. I'm impressed. All right. <laughs> Many different hats you wear. <laughs> um, but that, it can wind up being a, a lot of, of volume of gas, right? right. So they're pulling this out and it's still got some liquid helium kind of sloshing around in it. Um, and they have, they've disconnected it from the quench pipe um, and they've essentially capped where, where the helium would escape out the quench pipe. You know, they've put a plug in that end. Now you can spoil the vacuum. You can essentially let atmospheric air into the, the vacuum outer layer of the thermos bottle that provides a whole bunch of the insulation value. Um, and in this particular magnet, there was essentially, if you imagine sort of the vacuum chamber that comes down to a pipe, mm -hmm. right? And to the outside of the magnet. So um, they essentially, they build it, but it has atmospheric air in it. So you have to have a way of essentially pumping uh, the air out. So right. there's a tube, a pipe that goes to the, somewhere on the outside of the magnet that they can hook up a really powerful vacuum pump and essentially yeah. suck all of the air out of this thing. Now you have a vacuum inside this, you essentially can just put a plate up against the, the end of the pipe, right? And the vacuum is gonna, you know, hold the plate in place. Uh, put bolts in there just so that nobody accidentally kicks it off or whatever. Right. But once you take those bolts out, all you really need is sort of a screwdriver or a pry bar or something like that, and you can crack the, the vacuum, right? Mm. And allow atmospheric air to rush in. So you have some liquid helium inside this, this vessel, right? Um, that is not boiling or is boiling really slowly because it's still super insulated, um, um, which is a good thing because now they've plugged it up um, and if it boils off, if the pressure increases, there's no way for that. There's, it can't escape through its regular pathway. Right. So some guy is like, well, we need to make sure that all of the helium in here boils off. I don't know whether it was one person not communicating with somebody else and somebody else put the plug in when they were, doesn't matter. Guy comes with a little pry bar, pries it off. All of a sudden, 
the vacuum chamber sucks in all of this air, the vacuum that used to be providing insulation that kept the 500 degree temperature difference between the outside world and, and the inside world, that, that insulation uh, essentially is gone, gone in an instant. And the helium expands and rapidly. The helium expands rapidly, but somebody put a plug in where the magnet was connected to the quench pipe. And the magnet explodes and it blows the ends off of the magnet. I mean, the pressure just increases so rapidly Ooh. that in a matter of seconds after they do this, boom. And this is why they're pulling it out of the building? Well, so they, they pulled it out of the magnet room and it was in the next room. Oh, but okay. As they're getting ready to take it out of the building, they do this thing and it blows and um, it, it sends. So this was an older magnet. And if you can imagine just sort of you know, the clunky cylinder, you know, boxy kind of thing. Yeah. The end plates of the MRI scanner are actually these two donut shaped ends of, of the MRI scanner. And they're all, they got 47 bazillion bolts that essentially bolt them on the outside and then around the opening of the bore. Both of these steel plates that are about a half inch thick get blown off of the ends of the MRI scanner. One of them winds up hitting somebody as it oh. comes to rest. The pressure is so great that it essentially pushes down some of the walls between Ooh. the imaging center and the adjacent tenant spaces and, you know, like knocks things in, you know, through the drywall walls into the adjacent tenant space. Wow. Well, that's crazy. So it's almost like you have to have like companies that are like, you know, contracted companies to do these moves that are ex experienced with magnets because it's a whole different ball game from what they're used to. Yes. Yeah. You, you do not want, you know, Pick up Joe, right. general contractor. Angie list. Yeah, yeah. No, do not, do not go on Angie's list to find somebody to remove your magnet. Um, but um, there, there was one that um, that actually made the news just a few years ago, um, where somebody from the company that made this MRI was deinstalling it, and the guy from the company did something wrong. Um, and so this was. This one was in the news, so I feel like I can talk about it. This um, Oradell Animal Hospital. This was in New Jersey, um, uh, and guy was uh, involved in the animal hospital was essentially um, taking out an old MRI that they used for veterinary care, and they were going to replace it with a new one. Right. So they have the guy from the company that sold them the the first one, who's coming in to essentially deinstall this. Um, and a similar set of, of circumstances and Ooh. the magnet explodes. Um, and this one, I actually, um, I didn't see it in the, the animal hospital, um, but I, they, they pulled it out because obviously the animal hospital wants to make repairs and get back in business. Um, so they pulled it out and it goes to a warehouse somewhere. Um, I went and took a look at it um, and the, these giant bolts that bolted, again, the, the donut plates at either end of it, um, 
these giant bolts um, come out smooth and then there's this uh, corkscrew spring wire where the threads on the bolt essentially just got sheared oh. off because of the immense pressure you know kind of oh pushing this gosh. so there are these curly cues of the high strength that steel. Would take wow and again, there are, you know, oh bazillion bolts all around this, and it essentially stripped, you know, Gee. the threads out of every one of the bolts, both sides simultaneously. I mean, that has to be a really rapid pressure Ooh. release. Right. Um, so, you know, you're not just, like, sort of opening a corner. It's not like, you know, the package on your microwave burrito when you stick it in, you know, <laughs> you open up one end and you let some of the pressure out. This right. is this is the whole thing going kablooey all at once. And... Thankfully, I suppose, uh, you know, the only person who was really badly hurt um, was um, somebody who worked for the company and, and none of the, the client site. Uh, oh, the, right. um, I mean, I, I hate phrasing it like that. I mean, it's not good that anybody got hurt, but right. um, it had the potential of, of hurting a lot of people really badly. Right. Um, and thankfully, it was one person hurt really badly and, and a few other people that were hurt moderately. Um, Man. Well, I can't imagine you're involved in this case because it's kind of different, but it's sort of similar, sort of related. Uh, I, being from Utah, I kind of hit close to home with, what was it, about six months ago? I imagine you know where I'm going with this. There was yeah. the, They were moving a magnet. I think it was from like the fourth floor to the first floor or something like that, right? And yeah. Somehow, uh, an employee who was part of that crew that was helped to move it died i think magnet fell on him yeah that there's not a whole lot of information that's that's out there in in the public about that but yeah right. it looks like um so so when they when they lift magnets up or bring them down from from elevated floors um a lot of times the rigging companies will essentially use the, sometimes they call it a cookie sheet. It, it, it's not a cookie sheet. It's, it's essentially a steel platform, reinforced steel platform that they can essentially kind of roll the MRI onto. And then it's got, comes up and, you know, you hook a crane to it and you can essentially lift this thing up and then you plug it into the opening in the wall. And then somebody, you know, from the inside will essentially pull the, the magnet off of the cookie sheet into the room. Right. If you want to deinstall that magnet, take it out of the fourth floor or whatever, you push it out of the room onto the, the cookie, cookie sheet, sheet thing that nice. then you know comes and lifts it down. It's kind of how I do my DiGiornos. <laughs> <laughs> what it looks to me like, and and again, I have no inside information. I'm I'm not an expert on on whatever is happening with with this case. Um, what it looks to me like is when they pushed it out of the fourth floor onto the cookie sheet thing, somehow it got pushed too far or oh. the cookie sheet tipped or something like that. And the magnet essentially went off the other end and then fell through the roof of the building below Ooh, into through the roof. From the pictures, uh, again, I, d I don't yeah. have any you know direct knowledge of this other than what I've read. Right. Um, it looks like it went through the roof and then landed inside, you know, and, and I don't know whether the, the person who died died because the magnet landed on him or surely when it falls several floors it's essentially going to crack open and now all of a sudden oh. you've got you know right. liquid helium you know spilled right all there, over it. yeah right so um not good either way uh, right yeah man well I, i'm looking at uh the list of ones you 
before we would go over. And I think we haven't gone over the most. It's possibly the most bizarre. Oh, <laughs> it's not possibly most bizarre. It most definitely is the most bizarre. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start out with the least bizarre part of, of the story. Um, so it's a magnet that for reasons that, that I'll explain here in a few minutes, um, they, they manually quench. You know, somebody hits the red button um, uh, to quench this magnet. Uh, and the, the quench pipe, um, again, is not designed per spec. Um, and the, the cryogen gas, it has, it doesn't come up and it doesn't do the 90. It actually comes and it does a full 180, a little oh. candy cane, you know, bo peep hook um, at the top. And so it discharges by essentially shooting the, the super cold helium gas down at the roof surface, oh. right? Um, but they didn't design it correctly because they didn't put essentially thermal protection where the quench pipe comes up through the roof, you know, in that gap there. Um, and so it's, it's not too strange of, of an analogy to say, imagine a blowtorch, right? So a blowtorch is a huge heat temperature change, right? Under pressure, right? right. So, but instead of a hot blowtorch, this is essentially a super cold blowtorch. Nice. Um, and it's blowing down on the, the roof. Um, and so they didn't put um, the, the correct expansion gasket kind of thing that's thermally protected to allow it to quench and still be okay. They just put a bunch of caulk, you know, essentially in between the, you know, try and keep the water out, which may work fine for the water, but as soon as you, you know, essentially blast it with you know, super cold helium gas, it's probably gonna get brittle and crack and whatnot. Um, and so, so the magnet quenches, and this is in a place on the Gulf of Mexico that gets uh, lots of rain. And so a couple of days after it quenches, it rains, and all of a sudden, the nobody identified it in the moment, but now there's water essentially coming through the roof in the, the holes that were created because the magnet quenches. So now you have not only a quench magnet, but now you have water damage on your RF shield and in your magnet and all of this stuff, which wound up requiring that they tear out a bunch of the RF shield in addition to you know trying to fix things associated with the quench. So they have this leak and they're trying to figure out where this leak is coming from? Yeah. And it turns yeah. out it's from the quench? Oh, that's crazy. Um, and, and if you check on the, the screen for the other illustration, um, so this is, so, so they did it wrong, <laughs> but this is what uh, they should have done correct. Um, again, it has like the, the shepherd's crook, 180 degree, you know, bow peep kind of thing, which they did correctly. That part of, they got right. Um, but they, the little zigzaggy piece um, where the pipe goes through the roof, you know, a, a, oh, yeah. a thermally um, protected uh, gasket system they didn't have. And they also didn't have um, sort of a, a protective surface on the rooftop itself. So, this particular case had a metal roof, um, and those are, you know, bolted and screwed down in a bazillion places. So they're probably not going to move a whole lot. But there was another case that uh, uh, didn't go to litigation. So I technically wasn't an expert witness for it. Um, they they fixed it with the landlord, solved it with the landlord. But it was an imaging center 
that had a magnet that quenched um, in and they were in like a multi-tenant building um, and the they too had the 180 degree quench pipe and it shot down onto the roof but this particular building the roof you can have essentially giant sheets of roofing material that um, aren't glued or screwed down to the to the roof underneath it uh-huh. so it's it's almost like a tarp you know that's kind of laid out over there right. and usually you'll put like gravel or something like that to keep the tarp from blowing off the top of the roof well this magnet quenches and it super cools the tarp the the membrane of the roof and shrinkage it it contracts while it's super cold and then right. it's la <laughs> it's the suntime and summertime and it it stretches back out after it warms up but when it contracts it pulls away from the edge of the building where the, the edge of the tarp is essentially connected to another piece of waterproofing. But oh. because they shrink it and they pull it away, they short sheet, you know, the whole roof of the building. And now when it rains, now they start getting roof leaks in other tenant spaces, you know, on the other side of the building because <laughs> oh, it contracts the roof and, and tears it at the at the edge of the building and now right. all of a sudden you know they wind up getting you know water leaks and stuff running down when it when it rains in different parts of the building um so that was had to be a tough one to kind of figure out huh? yeah that, that's a, that is and then lie. like once you think about it right it makes sense but then right. you think of that yeah how do you right. come to that conclusion it's almost like, like oh. you need like to check the cctv <laughs> <laughs> like what happened I, a lot of these i'm like is there any surveillance of footage of any of this uh, Most not time, a, that no, one no. that I was aware of. Nobody, nobody no. told me about that one. No. Um, but you, you don't have to do. I mean, I, I know my little drawing has you know like concrete pavers and you know rigid foam insulation and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm aware of a hospital that accomplished the same sort of thing, um, low tech, um, and they essentially got like a, a black plastic. Um, feed trough or you know like livestock you know water trough or something like that um oh. and they set it under their quench pipe so the quench pipe comes up and over and they essentially put this trough you Smart. know underneath and dropped a whole bunch of rocks in it or something like that so it wouldn't blow away or shift or whatever right. so you can do this low tech you don't have to you know pay an architect to to, to do this for you um, but you should make sure particularly if you know you That's don't it. have the right protections where the quench pipe comes up through the roof or you have the kind of roof where you know it can shrink and contract and cause problems elsewhere you want to make sure that you keep you know quench exhaust off of your roof surface you want to try and protect it i mean this is sort of your area of i mean several areas of expertise but i mean that's how you got into this yeah right is architectural design and that's where it was lacking in this case. Yeah, <laughs> and and I've followed the twisty, turny road from that to to all kinds of other places. Yeah, nice. Wow! <laughs> Look out for those imaging centers that has the trough up on the, <laughs> up on the roof. <laughs> yeah, they're very resourceful though. Those yeah. are the out of the box thinkers, actually. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, are we missing anything? Well, uh, you asked about the, the most bizarre one, and I gave you the, the least bizarre oh, part of the, the most bizarre. That's not the least bizarre. Well, oh, gets, keep, or that is the least bizarre. Two-parter, huh? That's oh. the least bizarre part of this. <laughs> so funny. the reason that they had to quench that magnet, that's the bizarre one. <laughs> okay. Um, so this was a brand-new installation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the imaging center owner um, builds a building, um, it's actually, it's a clinic that, that he's going to have imaging as a part of. So 
It's a bunch of clinic spaces and an MRI suite, right? right. Um, now, the the MRI, it's a site that doesn't have a whole lot of space. So, you know, we're trying to squeeze 10 pounds of stuff in a five pound sack. Um, so everything is kind of getting squeezed a little bit. And um, that includes the, the MRI scanner room. Um, so it is not a large MRI scanner room that this magnet is gonna go into. Um, and so his architect prepares the designs for this. Um, the manufacturer who's selling him the magnet says, you're gonna have a five gauss problem because the five gauss lines, the room is so small, five gauss line is gonna push through into one of your adjacent clinic spaces. You need to put a boatload of magnetic shielding in the wall that separates the MRI room from the, the clinic space on the other side. Um, and the, the owner or the clinic developer um, says, okay, well, it's worth it to me to pay to have, you know, just like half inch plate steel on the back wall of the MRI scanner room to keep the five gas line contained. Right. Um, so, so he agrees to that. And, and so the equipment vendor says, great, we're all on the same page. We're gonna go make the magnet that we're gonna deliver to you in four months, six months, whatever. Um, and then the clinic owner um, says, you know what, that, the, that space on the other side of the magnet room, it would be a whole lot more useful if it was eight inches bigger, 10 inches bigger, not, not a huge difference, but essentially he pushes the, the wall that separates the magnet room from this adjacent space, he pushes it several inches into the MRI scanner room, the wall that has plate oh. steel, a huge amount of plate steel on it, pushes it closer to where the magnet is shown to be. Right. So he does this, but doesn't tell the, the manufacturer of the MRI system that he's making this change on the fly. Um, so the magnet manufacturer shows up four months later with you know delivering their magnet, and they go and they put it in the room and they measure off of the control room wall which was the, the dimension on their sighting plans that said it needs to be so many feet away from the control room wall, but they don't measure it off of the back wall, which is the wall that the, the owner developer moved in, in the designs of this. Um, but again, it's not like he moved it three feet, you know, it's not right. something that I think would necessarily be immediately obvious to somebody who wasn't looking specifically for this. Um, anyway, so they install the magnet, they ramp it up, um, and they start doing, um, um, I think they started applications training, um, or maybe it was still part of the QAQC of, of the installation of the magnet. Um, but the, the installation engineer for the um, magnet company um, comes in one day um, to, to do some tests on the magnet and, and there are the, the plastic covers that you know, kind of conceal where the feet of the magnet are sitting on the floor. Um, and everything's supposed to go together really nicely. And you know, all the seams are supposed to be straight and you know, all the plastic covers are supposed to snap together real nicely. But there's this one cover that just won't close. And he can't figure out why, because mm -hmm. it was closed you know, yesterday or the day before or right. something. They, the guys who put the plastic covers in place wouldn't have left it like this. Why is it, I don't remember it being like this. This is just weird. Um, so he pulls the plastic covers off to, to see, and it looks like the, the magnet has moved. 
about a centimeter. I mean, not okay. Not not a not, not a huge amount. Right. It could but, be like, uh, but, did it really move? Yeah, I think that was I think that was the question of right. you know, am I misremembering something? Did they just have to nudge it a little bit when they were putting it in position, or right. you know, what's the deal? Um. Anyway, so end of the day, he walks away, you know, and it leaves the the plastic covers off so he can see the foot because he wants to ask his boss about you know this this is weird this is this is not the right thing right comes back the next morning after having sent his boss the email saying you know did, did the installation guys have to move this about a centimeter because it's not where i thought it was supposed to be we're trying to figure this all out he shows up the next morning the magnet is three centimeters from Ooh where he thought it was supposed to be. So overnight it's moved like another couple of centimeters. Um, and he's like, why is this magnet moving? <laughs> oh God. Magnets should not move. Oh my God. Um, and apparently um, there is at least one description where somebody looking at the magnet sees it wobbling, Ooh. oscillating, moving back and forth. Um, and if you... Okay, so ISO the, center, baby. Scoot, so the scoot. magnet <laughs> magnet sits on yeah. <laughs> magnet sits on four feet, right? Um, and so if the magnet is attracted to something like, well, I don't know, a giant plate steel in right. the back wall, um, and it wants to be attracted to that, you know, right. steel in the back wall, um, it's going to get pulled towards it. And you're going to have unequal pressure on the feet, right? Because the feet closest to the the wall, you know, it's going to be kind of leaning in, right. and so the back feet are going to have less weight on them. And so you do this, and then that back foot essentially gets to pick up. And then if it sets back down, it might have creeped just the tiniest, you know, a fraction of a millimeter or something like that. But as soon as it starts doing this, now there's more attractive force because attractive force in magnetism is not linear. Right. It's an exponential function. With an actively shielded magnet, it's somewhere around to the fifth power. You know, not inverse square, not inverse cube, inverse fifth power right. for magnetic attraction for an actively shielded MRI system when you're close to it. Um, so, so it's leaning in the pressure comes off of the back feet you know and it wobbles a little bit and the back foot sets back down and takes some of the pressure off of the front foot so the front foot gets to lift up so magnet is, is at least according to one person doing something like this not to the magnitude that i'm doing it it's but, just sort of you know right. little tiny shimmies going back and forth the magnet is walking towards the back wall oh my gosh with this giant steel plate in it the magnet is going to the steel plate. Is this a one five? Did we say that already? Uh, actually, no. I think it was a three. I think this one was a three. Um, so everybody freaks the hell out. Oh yeah. You know. Um, like, what do you do? Exactly. This is never supposed to happen. This is not in the operator's manual. You know, right. when your magnet starts walking across the floor, please do the following. Yeah. Um, so, the the guy from the manufacturer um, who is there, and and he's brought in like the regional rep or something like that because of the email that he sent the night before. So he's not alone, but there are other people there. They're looking at this going. 
what happens when it walks a little closer? Yeah, and you're on a time hack too now because the closer it gets, the exponential, right? It, exactly, oh, right. Oh, so, yeah. so how how many more wobbles do we have before right. this thing goes flying at the steel plated back wall? Right. And once that happens, what happens to the magnet? What happens to the building? Right. Magnet's going to crack open like an egg, you know, and oh, then we're going to have you know liquid helium everywhere inside the room. But the force of the attraction is probably going to be like a wrecking ball hitting oh. this giant plate steel that is the, the building is framed out of like steel I-beams and everything, you know, and then the plate steel is essentially bolted to the I-beams that make this building. And this is up on an upper floor. So, you know, you do this, oh, it's gonna... are you going to like Ooh. topple the whole building? Right. So, so these guys and I am. I applaud them for, for making this decision in probably the same amount of time that I'm telling this story. Um, <laughs> they decide the only responsible thing to do is to hit the quench button. All right. They're like, if we can dissipate the, the magnetic field and we can stop it from you know being attracted to the back wall, it'll stop walking. We don't need to worry about it smashing in and right. all of you know destroying the magnet, destroying the building, killing everybody inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is. This, Serious, nobody right? wants to quench a magnet, but under these circumstances, quenching the magnet is, you know, yeah. the the least bad solution that that we have. So they, to their credit, they quench the magnet and quite potentially save the lives of everybody inside the building. Wow. For that. Obviously, that, it varies, but I'm curious. On average, what would it be the cost of the facility to quench a magnet? Not talking about lost revenue, right? Um, if you're in like a major city, where you know. The vendor has um, equipment and material. You know, they have replacement burst discs ready at hand. They have the personnel to, to kind of, you know, come in and do that. They have ready access to the high purity liquid helium that they need for refilling. Um, so it, we don't have a whole bunch of shipping costs or logistic costs and, uh, associated with that. Um, I think it can be as, and, well, helium's a commodity, and so helium prices change all of the time. Oh, so right. take this with a grain of salt. But I think it can be as low as about thirty thousand dollars. Really? Wow. Um, but if per gallon, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, total. Uh, um, but again, that assumes that we can respond really quickly. So right. if a magnet quenches and you can't get to that magnet quickly, um, and so that 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 last. 20% of the helium that's inside there that, that it escapes or whatever. And now all of a sudden the magnet can go negative that oh, the pressure inside cracking. there can essentially suck atmospheric air into that. Now you essentially, you have to evacuate all of the atmospheric air. You have, it's come up to room temperature. So you have to pre-cool the magnet. Usually they'll do that with like liquid nitrogen, which is, very cold, but not as cold as liquid helium. So they'll pump a whole bunch of uh, liquid nitrogen into the cryostat just to try and get it cold. But then they have to get all of that out because you can't have the nitrogen in, in there with the helium. Right. So they have to try and get all of the nitrogen out and clear it out. And then they'll like blast super cold helium gas to try and push all of the nitrogen out. And then they have to fill it with liquid helium, oh you know, gosh. back up. And then they have to ramp the magnet. Um, <laughs> so. If you have to go to that length, um, you know, that 25,000 lowest possible price tag very quickly gets up into six figures. Oh, 
and that's just the service charge, you know, not taking into account, you know, Great not being able to, to take care of your patients. All right. So, I mean, if they're worried about cost, which obviously they're worried about more than that, it was a no brainer. Right. To right. It. Yeah. Um, so what happened, obviously, after they decided to quench it, then that's when the roof contracted rapidly and obviously. Right. So, um, so the, the owner of the clinic, um, winds up suing the, the magnet manufacturer oh. saying, you know, you guys quench this, you, you're responsible for the quench. And because the roof leaked after the quench and it wouldn't have had the magnet not been quenched, you guys were responsible for all of that. Right. And he also sued, um, the insurance company that had the, the coverage over the business and, and, and the, the clinic building, um, because the insurance company was like, yeah, we're not paying out until we figure out who's responsible for this. Because if, if it was something that you, the clinic did that violated the, the coverage terms of the insurance policy, we're not going to give you free money. You know, we right. need to know what happened before we make good on, on any policy. Right. Um, so, so the owner sues both the insurance company, his insurance company and the MRI manufacturer. I get hired by the insurance company's attorneys to be their expert. Um, and through months of uh, back and forth and litigation, um, the insurance company ultimately goes before the judge and says, hey, judge, I think we've demonstrated that, you know, this was a problem, you know, that the reason that, that this occurred was you know this or the other thing that you know is a is an explicit exclusion for the coverage of our insurance of so this should not be covered under our policy and the judge says you know what i agree with you you're out of the lawsuit you're no longer a defender a defendant in in this lawsuit so the insurance company sure. is free and clear so they are gone um normally that would be sort of the end of the story for me also um but um the Magnet manufacturer um, says, the attorneys for the magnet company um, lean over and whisper in the ears <laughs> of the attorneys for the insurance company and say, hey, would you mind if we hired your expert? You know, right. uh, we think he did really well for you. We think he might do really well for us. Um, and so one of the really bizarre things, well, the really bizarre stuff is a magnet walking across the floor. But <laughs> in terms of my involvement, I wound up being an expert for two different parties in the oh, exact the same, same suit, which is kind of strange because usually at the beginning of the suit, um, all of the attorneys say, it's not me, it's the other guy, you know, and everybody's pointing fingers at somebody else, um, which includes, you know, the insurance company saying, you know, look, the quench and the roof leak stuff, you know, that's that's not on us. That was right. caused because of the quench. So if you want, if you want, you know, resolution to that, you need to go to the equipment company, the MRI company. So so there's a little bit of finger pointing and saying that's not us. That's the other guy that right. you want to sue. Um, but well, that's, I mean, that's all. The finger pointing. How how far into it was it revealed that? he moved the wall eight inches um 
Well, I got brought in after uh, you know a fair bit of the the discovery, which is the process of you know give us this information, tell us you know when this happened, how this happened, give us the documentation for X Y Z. So, um, this case, I was not brought in in the, in, in the very beginning. So they had collected information for like a year or so before I came on board with it. Um, so I, they, they essentially sort of dumped all this stuff in my lap. Um, for, the, um, for the cases where you know, I get brought in right after whatever the thing is happens, um, the discovery process, of course, at first, everybody circles the wagons and hires their lawyers and you know right. nobody's talking to anybody about anything. So you right. essentially need to file the lawsuit. You need to you know make appearances before the judge. You get the judge to agree that, okay, everybody needs to share information. Okay, here's the information we want the other guy to share. And the other guy says, well, this is this is BS. I don't, I'm not going to share this thing with. Okay, I'll I'll do this one thing, but not the right. other two. Or it's like, why do you need my internet history? <laughs> <laughs> Browser history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Crap. Right. Um, so, so the judge then mediates the. You know, you're going to give them this. You're not going to give them that. You know, and 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 works through all of that stuff. And right. and then they start sharing information. So that finding out the details of who made the decision or when they did or how that happened, that can take months or years after, you know, the event actually happens, depending on how slow it is just to kind of get the, the legal process going in the first place and how much foot dragging and objecting, you know, the, the different parties want to do to different information requests. Do they leave that space open so that, you know, after a year, I can't imagine them leaving that space open, but like, can you even kind of get in there and kind of see the environment to kind of picture it? Or they just take pictures and you just see all the pictures that they had and stuff like that? So for that one, all I saw was like uh, pictures and videos and, you know, folks who were there right after it happened, you know, took bazillion pictures and that kind of thing. So. It's not as good as being there, but at least it gives you, you know, kind of a rough idea of, of what happened and what it looked like and right. that kind of thing. Dang. What an exciting life you live. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's right? Jet Set. He was just in Dubai. Right. I saw some of his pictures he posted. Man. Um, and then you're doing this. It's interesting, I'm sure, especially for people who know you and close to you, to see how your, your uh, career has evolved, right? You, are you currently on, I mean, I imagine you're not at liberty to say, but are you working with any active cases right now? Uh, yeah, I am. I've, I've got a, a few active cases that are going on right now, um, and they they have sort of morphed over time. I mean, they started out being all just the the architectural stuff, um, or you know, magnet sighting, magnet interaction with the building stuff. Um, but uh, right now, I'm involved in a couple of cases um, that are really have nothing to do with magnet sighting or quenches or anything like that, and are more about were best practices followed yeah they're Ah. they're both you know injury cases uh for for patients um interestingly one of them i'm on the side uh, or work for the attorneys on the side of the the patient and for one of them i'm working for the attorneys on the side of the hospital so um to to your much earlier question about you know do you work defense or do you work you know on the plaintiff side um I just I try and tell them you know anybody who calls me I tell them how I see it. Just and facts. If, well, at the end of the day, it's just facts and it's non-biased, right? So right. it shouldn't matter what side I, you're on. I, and I, I was mostly just curious about if there's a trend. Oh, um, 
I, I probably haven't been doing it enough or it hasn't been a big enough slice of, of the work that I do for me to, to reliably say, you know, this is what it looks like. That having, that being said, um, uh, Dr. Canal has, has told me before that over time, over the years, um, and he does, you know, I do this much expert witness, you know, stuff. He does this much expert witness stuff. Right. So, um, he has told me that, you know, he has every year he winds up doing more and more expert witness stuff for MRI wow. safety related stuff. Now he's a physician, so he's probably also doing, you know, a lot of the clinical, you know, right clinical decision-making did somebody actually you know read the mri correctly so so his his area of expertise um is is much broader than than mine so well i just want to say if people want to reach out to you what's the best way to kind of do that if if there are lawyers and things out there sure for you uh can we post your info sure yeah um so um i have a website Gilk Radiology Consultants, where I talk about some of the expert witness stuff that I do. So, nice. um, if if you want to hit up the website, um, yeah. that's a that's open a good way to find them. Check and you're them. open to traveling outside the U.S., right? I would imagine if that's where a case took you to. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, anywhere except for Canada, <laughs> <laughs> they're just an easy target. <laughs> Darn Canadians. I don't get political. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking of my Canadian friend back in the day. <laughs> no. I, um, I mean, my goal at the end of the day is uh, not to not to become Perry Mason. You know, I'm not interested in becoming a right. you know a, a. Either way, there's going to be a thumbnail, bro, and you're wearing. You're yeah. Got the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Sherlock Holmes get up. In fact, can you wear this monocle for me, real quick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, ultimately, what I want to do is I want to try and make sure that that. You know, MRI is as safe as possible, and you know sometimes that means trying to figure out when things go wrong, identifying specifically what went wrong. So right. you know, and and unfortunately, you know, sometimes that means the only way to really do that is through the legal system, um, and you know, try and right some wrongs that happened, um, and uh, but hopefully all of that information ultimately makes it back into the public domain so that we don't repeat the mistakes that somebody else has made. And it's kind of holding people accountable helps to prevent those same mistakes. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I totally believe it. And I I appreciate what you do for the industry and MRI safety and how you're helping to evolve that. You're getting people involved and now you're getting involved in area in ways you never thought. And I think that's super cool. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Um, I'm not allowed within 500 feet of a courtyard. (laughs) 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 So that's my future. (laughs) I'm on a first name with first name basis with the judge. (laughs) Uh, Are we missing anything, Reggie? I think this has been a fun episode. Yeah, this has been great. Big shout out to Ages, of course, you know, our sponsor. Let's not forget Katie behind the camera. Yeah, we love you, Katie. Katie. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Toby. Uh, we're excited to see you again. It'll be AHRA, I believe, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, um, stay tuned for summer, that. We hope to have you back for that. I'll so be back in Phoenix for that. Oh, yeah. You know. In the heat. A, yeah, I was going to say, appreciate this weather day. Well, well you can, because, well, you're coming, where are you coming from? Kansas? Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again, Toby. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you again thank for you watching guys. this episode. Do all those things that, <laughs> that you can just tell you to do. <laughs> uh, subscribe, like, tell your friends. Zone 3 Podcast. Say it, Reggie. We are out.